and welcome to this week's episode of the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall, and a quick heads up that today we're going to be talking about the BMI, which means we're probably also going to talk about things like weight management, weight loss, and probably diet culture. So take good care of yourself. And if that's not a thing you need to listen to, don't. And that's okay. You know, when I was thinking about the show and how we get into it, I, I have this very, very clear memory of the first time I learned about the BMI. So it was around this time of year, we're recording this in the spring, school hadn't let out yet, but you're starting to feel that like excitement that school is about to. And at the time, my mom was with a man who worked for the New York State Police Force. And he they had recently issued this like height and weight chart that he brought home. And I thought at the time that it was really just a height and weight chart of what it meant to be healthy to be a cop. And I'm around 14 this time. And, you know, I'm real tall. I'm a big woman. So I was already around like maybe almost six foot tall, like at least 5'11", and probably like 180, 190 pounds. But I was also playing varsity basketball and varsity volleyball, even though I was only in junior high. So I was a big kid, but I was also really dense and really active. So this guy catches me in the living room. He shows me this height, weight chart and how to read it. And yep, I'm overweight. And I don't know if you know this, but pro tip, if you want to mess with a teenage girl's self-esteem, you should tell her there's something wrong with her body. So you can probably guess I don't really love the BMI. And fortunately, it seems these days, like more and more people are starting to call into question the use of this tool that maybe isn't as useful as we've been led to believe. But just in case either you need some persuading, maybe you've got some questions, or you're a practitioner and you want some more information so that you're making good choices, well, you're in luck. Because today's episode is the next in a series of episodes that we've been doing looking at controversial and sticky topics in the fitness and wellness space. So in January, today's guest came on to share his expertise on an episode titled, Is Dieting That Bad? Hint. Yup. Uh, in April, the episode was titled Fat Bias and Public Health. And today, he's going to tell us what's wrong with the BMI. He's the content development and production manager here at NASM. Uh, he's been in fitness for over 20 years. He's got a bachelor's in psychology, a master's in exercise science. He's currently pursuing his doctorate in health science and organizational leadership. He's friend of the pod, and he's Eric's boss. Rich Fami, welcome to Better Than Fine. <laughs> Thank you, Darlene. <laughs> I like the Eric's boss thing. That's that's funny. Um, yeah, I feel like, and if you don't know who Eric is, true. Eric is our producer. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just the guy Eric calls up with with issues and needs. I don't know about boss. So that's. I mean, you're a boss. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate you're also that. the it's guy good. who, after the last time you were on the show, you texted me a screen grab of myself with the subtitle resting rage face uh, so you know it's going to be another one of those episodes and, so let's get to it i think so i don't know if this one will be as rage inducing uh but we'll see we'll see i don't know if it's my my goal to just induce rage although your 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 story from childhood uh one i'm terribly sorry to hear that um yeah. but two it actually yeah I, I can gather. Um, the 
uh, that actually is a big part of this, that height and weight, the old height and weight charts. Um, and BMI was supposed to be an answer to those. Yeah, and it, it really isn't an answer to those. It's just statistically a little bit better, but not actually any it's better at deciding, anyway, deciding anything. Yeah, we can get to there. Take us on a journey, Mr. Fami. Sure. Uh, you know, normally I start out with ground rules. I don't know that we really need ground rules on this one. I think we can just kind of go, th go through and talk about what BMI actually is um, and, and what is it purporting to measure. How was it actually developed in the first place? How did it come to be? And then is it valid at predicting health outcomes? We'll talk about that because that's that's its main uh, argument or, or use case, I guess, right now in public health and fitness and uh, medical professions and the insurance industry, which has a big play on this one. Um, so the, the we'll look at the validity of using it to predict health outcomes. And then when can it be useful? Because th there is an argument for when it can be useful, but it's not really anything that any individual professional needs to worry about. So we'll, we'll talk about where it's useful. And then also, is there an alternative? To mm. be so we'll get into all of that goodness. Good, we got some ground cover. Let's get yeah. um, Okay, so BMI at, at, its, at its core is it's a measure of relative body weight and it's a calculation of uh, my weight in kilograms divided by my height in square meters, so my height squared. So weight divided by height squared. Um, what that really means, it's, it's a mass to surface area calculation. So if we remember from, from uh, geometry um, or calculus, the, the, the surface area of something is like saying the floor is a 10 by 10 room has a surface area of 100 square feet, right? 10 times 10. Um, and so we, the, what the BMI is trying to get at is how much mass lives within the surface area that my body occupies. Uh, I think I'm going to give, give it away here, mm -hmm. but if I'm guessing, um, the problem is that we're not talking about anything to do with density then, right? No, total right. mass. Right. Like yep. it's just, so, so I know one thing I've encountered is, you know, like my husband's also a personal trainer. He's been a trainer for 20 years. He's kind of a freak athlete. And so his BMI is well into obese, even though he has mm -hmm. a low body fat percentage because he's very dense, which is also my deal is like, I have heavy organs and like heavy bone density. Like the quality of my tissue is very heavy. So I am mm -hmm. heavy, right? Like that's, yes. if we take the geometry of it, like, there we go. Okay. Episode done. Let's yes. go home. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, I mean, we don't need to get into it a whole lot, but how is um, my height squared an even decent measure of my surface area? Yeah, that that was my immediate thought. It's like, yeah. you know, I'm six one. A lot of like skinny models are six foot one, but I'm a very different six foot one than like an underwear model or a catalog model, right? My frame mm -hmm. is totally different. So. Mm -hmm. What is what is the length of my femurs have anything to do with the surface area of my body, right? Right, right. Yeah, is dumb. None at all. <laughs> <It's> yeah, <dumb. laughs> pretty much. It's a, um, so it's a dumb supposition to begin with. Yes, and so so it, it does not um, to reiterate your great points. There, it does not tell you anything about the sources of your body weight, the density of your tissue, the distribution of your body weight or adipose tissue, and the endocrine functionality of of a person's adipose tissue. All these things can have an effect on on what weight does to your health um, and how and how they interact along with 
a bazillion other factors that impact someone's health and weight. Um, it's got it's got limitations with um, people of color, particularly women. Of course, muscled people we talked about to some degree, um, and athletic populations. And then there's just this other thing of is the logic flawed just to begin with? Just at its at its most basic level, is people kind of say, oh, BMI is a reliable measure. Uh, and I hate this word, but it's the word that's out there right now. Is it a reliable measure of body fatness? Right? Does it actually yeah. measure that? Okay. Well, and mm -hmm. can I link that back to a phrase you just said for the benefit of the listener, which was endocrine yes. endocrine function of your adipose tissue? Mm -hmm. And so, can you just unpack that phrase, which I think sure. then leads directly into the point that you're about to make? And I, I just don't want to leave anybody behind. Yes. Yeah. Great point. So we, we've talked before about skeletal muscle being an endocrine organ and how exercise um, stimulates that or physical activity stimulates it to release kind of this pharmacy of chemicals and signalers that um, positively affect a lot of functions in the body. Mm -hmm. Adipose tissue, we've always, you know, not always, traditionally we've thought of, of adipose tissue or body fat as energy storage, right? And But it's not really only energy storage. It actually is an endocrine organ itself. So it, it emits and um, you know puts out there signalers, hormones, all kinds of things that affect different body systems for the better and for the worse. Now, um, just because I have more adipose tissue, let's say, than what is considered normative, that doesn't necessarily mean that it that endocrine organ of adiposity or end, endocrine organ of adipose tissue is going to negatively affect me because of two things. We, we don't know that my body is as sensitive to the things that my adipose tissue is releasing. And it could just be that because of genetics and luck of the draw of the genetic lottery, my adipose tissue doesn't behave as a, uh, as a negatively functioning endocrine organ, mm. right? BMI doesn't really say anything about that, but that's how we get to people who are um, higher based on BMI, but they're metabolically perfectly healthy of which there are a lot of those people. Yeah. So what you're saying is just, just being heavier doesn't inherently like mean you are unhealthy. And even just having more body fat does not necessarily mean that you are metabolically dysfunctional, right? Like adipose tissue sends out signals and it could be lots of different kinds of adipose tissue and it's not just default bad. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The distribution so were, and the type make a difference. Too. You were leading us somewhere take us there <laughs> yeah just that yeah that's just the basic logic of it too so you know if bmi is a you know are we saying bmi is a reliable reliable measure of body fatness well think of it this way if because of the way it was formulated which we'll get to in a sec if someone has obesity or overweight their bmi is going to be high hmm. but it doesn't mean that someone with a high bmi has obesity or is overweight mm -hmm. so it's, it's like saying Hey, you know, for my birthday, I got a puppy. Well, you can assume that my present, my birthday present has fur. Right? But it, but if I say my, if I go backwards and I go, my birthday present has fur. It's not. You can't assume a it's puppy. a puppy. Yeah. 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 Right. Exactly. So that's that's the logic there. Just is the logic at its basic level is is flawed. So you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlie Marshall. My kind of quasi-guest co-host, to say you're less than just a guest, um, is or more than just a guest, excuse me, is Rich Fahmy. And he's here to share with us what's wrong with BMI. So 
where do we go from here? So uh, I've got a puppy. I've got a, I got a birthday present with fur. And also it's a puppy. <laughs> I've got a high BMI and also excellent bone density. Please continue. There you go. All the factors. Uh, and that's really what a lot of this comes out to. So if we look at how BMI was developed, it's going to shed some light into really how we arrived today and how it, it, we got to this place of BMI being considered to be so valid. So it was developed in the 1830s. So BMI is almost 200 <laughs> years old. Um, and I'm going to butcher this name. He's, he's Belgian, but it's French pronunciation, but it's uh, Lambert Adolphe Jacques Catelet. Um, I better than I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a Belgian statistician, sociologist, astronomer, and mathematician. Um, notice none of that said physician. Yeah, I was like, or... I heard math guy. It's a Belgian math guy. Yeah. So and where this came from is actuary. So people who assess risk for outcomes in a population, usually, uh, they're really big in the insurance industry. But these actuaries were, were looking at, um, they were reporting high death rates. So he wanted to go see, he wanted to investigate, were there any physical characteristics that were related to those high death rates. So basically, is there a relationship between um, height, weight, and dying? <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's what he wanted I, to look at. I have heard that tall people die a little bit earlier than short people, but other than that, that's all I've got uh -oh. for that one. <laughs> oh no, um, it's like a it's like a big dog versus a small dog, huh? Um, yeah, it's like you've got uh, more cells. It's more likely something will go wrong. Anyway, I rabbit hole. Right. I apologize. So gotcha, gotcha. Belgian, two hundred years ago, math guy. Math guy. Um, and let's keep in mind, too, that in the 1830s, it's not like there was a large proportion of people in larger bodies to begin with. And the thing that really caught the leading causes of death were infectious disease. So, yeah. uh, you know, lack of hygiene, high, lack of hygienic environments, particularly in large crowded cities that kept increasing in population over the years, um, tuberculosis, typhoid fever, diphtheria, pertussis, scarlet fever, uh, many cases of um, fatal pneumonia and bronchitis. So that was really the main cause of death, uh, leading cause know, of death at his time. Do you know if this is pre-general awareness of germ theory? Like, is this that far back? I don't have a sense of when germ theory became common knowledge. Um, I don't remember when that was, but I remember reading something mm. about the lack of hygiene they they were looking at as being a because of the overcrowding in urban areas in particular the lack of hygiene and medical uh, practice um, okay. just in general and a medical practice was a part of it so i would i would imagine that maybe yeah, by this so. time there was at least a thought that, that would be something okay. so um Kittelay, i'm not going to say it. i don't know I'm gonna, you're I'm doing gonna great calling him something else <laughs> but call him uh, jock used, just call him by his like, middle name call him shock <laughs> lambert <laughs> Um, so, and it, and it's spelled Lambert. So that's what I really want to say, but it's Lambert. Um, so he used weight over height squared because it was more statistically stable <laughs> as height increases. He's a math guy. Because he's a math guy compared to weight over height, which is a lot of that, that basic ratio of the height weight tables, right? Or there was also another calculation of weight over height cubed, height mm -hmm. to the power of three. And basically, white, what, white, <laughs> I'm going to get to that in a sec. Weight <laughs> over height squared was just statistically a better thing to use as height increased from a, mm -hmm. from a, you know, a statistical um, standpoint, because that's what he was, a statistician. Now, so have a sense of where you're going. Uh, what population yeah. was available to him, Rich? His population consisted of only white, French, and Scottish men. Mm. 
What a very specific so, demographic. That's a very specific demographic. Um, the other thing to take real, that's really important is he himself did not advocate it as a measure of adiposity or fatness, as we want to, as people say, uh, researchers say, or what have you. Its original design was to assess risk and death patterns of a population, not an individual. Yeah. Yeah. So, so even I think in conception. So I think what I hear you saying is math guy was looking for easy math things to look at big level data, like trend level data within a population. Mm -hmm. uh, so how did we get from math guy going for easy numbers he could play with to my doctor going, well, you know, your BMI is over the uh, overweight line. <laughs> yes. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> all right. So I'm going to see how fast I can take us on this little journey. So um, an American physiologist named Ansel Keys, who is who's oh, best known. Have you heard about Ansel Keys? Oh, I've heard about Ansel Keys. Go on. Okay. Okay. So uh, most known for his seven countries study, but, but there's a lot of controversy around this guy, but there are some things that he did that I think were um, useful from a population standpoint, but his big deal was, was quantitative biology. So explain what that is. Um, just trying to put numbers and statistics to um, factors of health and population health. So to get to get a good understanding of what's going on, you know, using numbers and stats. Okay. Um, he tried more to advocate guys. more math guys. Yeah, and he's a physiologist. He he's also one of the first people to to say that there's a link between um, heart disease and and diet, uh, mm. even though there's there's lots of problems with how he went about doing that but but he did you know to 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 his credit he was one of the first people to say look um heart disease is not just an inevitability of aging lifestyle is a part of it so if we look if mm -hmm. we go really a thirty thousand foot view um then there's some validity there now the research and all that stuff and we can get into that but it's not necessarily about bmi um he also had some pretty negative and to devastating comments on obesity um so there's that but if we stick to bmi um he was basically advocating for dropping the height and weight tables used by the insurance industry because he felt that there was a better more valid measure of adiposity and and then heart disease risk. The problem is he didn't really show that. He just showed that um, that BMI is better than weight over height because it's closer to skin fold caliper body fat measurement. So his his main thing was, can we get an adiposity measurement that relies less on height and is more closely related to actual tissue distribution and density? actual adiposity. Now, just because it was better than the old fashioned white, 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 oh my God, I keep saying it, the old fashioned weight versus height. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of subliminal stuff in my consciousness right now. By, by saying, just because you say it's better than weight divided by height, does not mean it's all that great in and of yeah. itself objectively. I think I hear a few fallacies here, right? Like the first fallacy mm -hmm. is having more adiposity is inherently bad. The second is that on an individual level, we could use some kind of measurement of height and weight to kind of throw a dart at your adiposity. Mm -hmm. And if you're tying it to insurance, 
you're also now tying it to some kind of like outcome implication and uh, also therefore like payout and support. Um, so is this like life insurance or health insurance? Life insurance is, I believe. I, I couldn't okay. find which one, but life insurance was the one that kept coming up. I mean, then the issue here is, is BMI was used as a sole marker to determine life insurance rates. Um, so, so, so bad issue... people pay more for life insurance because of Ansel Keys. Yes, you can thank Ansel Keys. Um, hey! The, hey, thanks, Ansel. Um, people, he did live to 100, which was or like almost 100, either 99 or 100, which was interesting. But he, I couldn't find the quote, but I saw it. And his quote basically said his longevity, um, or no, his whatever condition he was ultimately afflicted with, um, he couldn't say that his weight had anything to do with it, which he wasn't necessarily. Um, no, I think actually on BMI he was because he was, I believe he was shorter in stature and kind of a muscular guy or something so like that. Don't BMI quote me on that. Great. That would be funny. His own, his own BMI wasn't great, but he wasn't really, his health, you know, again, his risk wasn't really correlated to his BMI. Yeah. Um, imagine that. So, but the, you know, people may be of no greater risk um, than someone who has a normative BMI, but yet you're assigning them. Uh, you're calling them as someone, or you're you're categorizing them as someone with greater risk, and therefore charge, charging them more. It could also disproportionately affect insurance coverage for people of color, because remember the study population was was mostly white people, and right? Men. So any and men, white men, and and BMI is is most problematic for women of color. Yeah. So in that sense, it actually could, um, on on the basis of of someone's race, increase their insurance premium. Right, and and we we already know there are obviously socioeconomic or social determinants of health. There's all these different things that play into that. So there's many factors here, but this is one factor that can have a negative financial impact as well. Um, but you know, the the to think about um, well, we might get to this a little bit later. But but what what are the what's the right perspective here? Are we treating those in larger bodies as diseased, and automatically unhealthy, or are we looking at a, a broader population that they could be more vulnerable to certain health risks and we need to address some lifestyle factors that could quickly compound uh, into a real health problem, right? Like what are we really using BMI for? And I think the second one is, is more of a, an appropriate use case. Yeah. You're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. My guest co-host is Rich Fahmy and we're looking at what's wrong with the BMI? Like what's up with that? So where do we go from here? Well, I, I think, you know, there's lots of good evidence on this, but, you know, I don't, and I have lots of notes, but we can see what we can pick out. The next thing to really talk about is, so is it actually valid at predicting a health outcome of an individual? Oh, and yeah. I, I think you could probably tell where we're going to go with this one, but, you know, let's, let's also recap that it is used by health profession, health professionals, fitness professionals, insurance companies to decide if someone is healthy or if they qualify for a procedure, or if they have to be charged more for life insurance. So they're using it as the, the simple sort of gate, right? Or red light, green light to a category of all kinds of things. Um, right, and even, even the CDC website, so this is a direct quote from the CDC website when they talk about BMI and healthy weight. BMI screens for weight categories that may lead to health problems, but it does not diagnose the body fatness or health of an individual. Oh, that's okay. a direct CDC quote. Well, maybe. 
but but no right <laughs> what so so one thing that's that's just come to mind me and you know for the listener who hasn't listened to um, the episode we did in January is dieting that bad, where essentially looked at one of the most surefire ways to ensure that someone will gain weight is to put them on a diet and then wait for them to come off it. And they're going to end up at the same weight or are likely heavier than they started. And then the April episode, Fat Bias on Public Health, we were looking at all of the ways that our public health system kind of treats people in larger bodies worse. And oftentimes the stress of that treatment perpetuate and, and the, and the lack of treatment perpetuates negative health outcomes. And it occurs to me as somebody who had this happen to her, like, Oh, you have an overweight BMI. You really should go on a diet. And now because you're presenting that information and not looking at a whole person and what their other health indicators are, you are causing the chain of events that then lightly leads to adverse health outcomes. Do you have any thoughts on that or just do you want to nod and we can keep going? <laughs> uh, I mean, the nod is, is a huge nod. Yes. Um, but it's, it's, there is a specific example I did find and it was, it was on disordered eating and it was something around, um, so let's see if I can find it. It was something around basically someone in a normative BMI, um, may not receive treatment because someone just assumes if you have an eating disorder, your BMI is, is, Low. you know, the overweight or obese category. So a lot of people get overlooked and, and misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed because of their BMI. And that goes both directions. So someone may have a higher BMI and the physician goes, well, this must be your problem. Or someone may have um, a normative BMI and the physician goes, well, weight control isn't your issue. And all these different things can't be your issue an eating disorder can't be your issue because your BMI is fine. So then, yeah. you know, you get, you get, people don't get the the care they need. They don't get the right diagnostics and they don't get the right diagnoses as a result. Yeah. I didn't know we were going to talk about this today. So I don't have the data and statistics right at the tip of my finger. So listener, forgive me. Um, but I know that I have read information around eating disorder diagnostic criteria, which I think I talk about in the orthorexia episode, if you want to go back and dig into it. Um, but essentially that being underweight is one of the diagnostic criteria for having an eating disorder. And so people who are in larger bodies with eating disorders don't get diagnosed because it's not considered part of the diagnostic criteria. And mm -hmm. there are some wonderful research practitioners out there starting to do research to build the body of evidence to change that diagnostic criteria, because if you're paying attention at all, you know that that's not right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I'm excited and heartened by those people out there doing doing the good work to, to change things in a positive way. Yeah, and there's a lot of folks doing that too to get this right. And and I mean, if, if we wanna go sort of at its most basic level when it comes to BMI and health outcomes, it, it just does not, BMI doesn't take into account body composition, adipose tissue composition, distribution, metabolic differences, lifestyle behaviors, genetics, weight loss history, mood disorders, uh, childhood trauma, fat phobia, right? You can't, you can't, it, living conditions. Other forms <laughs> all of these chronic things. illness. Yes, um, other forms of chronic illness. Thyroid conditions. Um, yeah, all, all these things that affect someone's health and are predictors of health outcomes. So no, it can't be used to screen for someone's individual health. 
Um, so the there's there's lots of research correlating body size and health outcomes in in multiple directions. However, there's um, there's a part of that is there's lots of evidence showing metabolically healthy people, regardless of any excess weight, have no greater risk or uh, risk of death or disease than those in the normal weight spectrum. And I know we talked about this one a little bit on on the last show, um, but it, I actually found some better numbers too. Well, one of the numbers I think I brought up last time, but but one of the researchers said, look, we have to think of things in uh, of a set of six phenotypes. And by a phenotype, I mean a grouping or a set of characteristics driven by the interaction of genetics and the environment. So that's a mm. phenotype. Mm -hmm. And and the six of them are basically normal weight, normal weight, quote unquote, individual mm. with that does have cardiometabolic abnormalities. Okay. So they're metabolically unhealthy. Normal weight, um, who is metabolically healthy. Overweight, who is uh, metabolically unhealthy, overweight who is metabolically healthy, and then obese who is met, uh, uh, someone with obesity who is metabolically unhealthy, and someone with obesity who is um, met metabolically healthy. So it's normal, overweight, obese categories, basically metabolically healthy and unhealthy in each of those. So there's just six categories. So for those that are of a normal weight with uh, who are also metabolically unhealthy, there's 16.3 million adults in that category. Oh yeah. Um, people who are overweight in the overweight category who are metabolically perfectly healthy, 35.9 million adults in that category. People so, who are considered, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 you go ahead, you go ahead. Yeah, last one. People who are considered obese uh, as having obesity based on BMI, but they are metabolically healthy, 19.5 million adults in that category. So soft quotes, normal. And of course, you know, I hate the phrase normal weight. Cause like mm -hmm. whatever the hell that means. Um, so normal weight, but metabolically unhealthy. There are more people who are soft quotes, obese, who are metabolically healthy than there are normal normal weight people who are metabolically unhealthy. But we're out here saying that the people who like were conditioned to think look better in their underwear are somehow better off than the people who are actually having metabolic health. Exactly. Like, that's what you're saying. Exactly. Can you it, really drive it home for us? Um, you have a vast knowledge and expertise, so I trust that even if this isn't in your notes, you got this. Um, how does someone know they're metabolically healthy, right? We throw that phrase around. What does that mean in the numbers? Sure. So the, uh, let me see, the numbers here I may not have off the top of my head, but we, we do have what the research defines as metabolically um, healthy or unhealthy, they're looking at certain markers. So those are things like um, blood cholesterol, um, triglycerides, blood pressure, and insulin resistance. Yeah. So when I'm taking all those C, things right? together, A1C, um, and so and I don't have the ranges off offhand, it might be like 5.7 or something mm -hmm. like that on the yep. A1C. Um, I know that one off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. So, um, and then blood pressure, right? You know, 120 over 80 is your normal, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, LDL versus HDL, good cholesterol, bad cholesterol. So that's what we're looking at when we're saying metabolically healthy are all those things in line with, um, you know, within range from a, from a blood panel perspective, right? The doctor is going to look at these things and say, okay, everything's, everything's cool. 
So if I've got good cholesterol, good triglycerides, that I, that's not how you pronounce that word, good blood <laughs> pressure and a normative A1C, a metabolically healthy. And there's like, I think what I hear you saying is regardless of what my BMI number is, if I'm metabolically healthy, there is no correlation between my BMI and my health outcomes. Yes, correct. Okay, there you go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if I if I'm metabolically healthy, regardless of my category categorization on on a BMI chart, um, then matter. my health outcomes aren't any worse. So the thing that that uh, so I tried to look at some of the statistical analysis because they they tried to see okay, what is it that that creates the what we would consider the the uh, non-intuitive categories, right? Someone who's a normal weight, but they're metabolically unhealthy, and then someone who has excess weight, but they're metabolically healthy. So they, they did some analysis, and what they found is the things that showed up were uh, the, the factors that mattered in creating those non-intuitive situations were smoking, waist circumference, and physical activity. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That so, makes sense to me. You want to unpack them? Sure. Well, I mean, smoking is kind of an obvious one, right? In terms yeah. of your mortality and, and it's, likelihood. It's to, not good to, for you, everybody. Yeah, it's <laughs> not good. News, <laughs> news flash. Uh, you may want to check the Surgeon General warnings on those packs of cigarettes. Um, mm. Again, everyone has their own choice. I'm not going to bash smokers because I feel like they've already taken so much abuse. Uh, my dad was a smoker. Um, I was for 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, There's let's a not, mic drop gonna, moment. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to bash people. Um, because obviously, you know, smoking is a very complex issue. But anyway, from, from a public health standpoint, yes, we know that smoking is considered something that contributes to, to health risk. Um, yeah. And then um, physical activity, obviously what we consider it. So on this one, we can go really, de really deep on this or not, but it's just the, the, when we talk about physical activity and exercise, we're talking about the national guidelines of 150 minutes per week of moderate activity or 75 minutes per week um, accumulated uh, vigorous activity. But as we know from certified wellness coach, you know, don't try and hit those numbers, just move more, right? Try and get some activity in when it makes sense. So, um, and then waist circumference. So this one is a waist measurement taken at the narrowest point between the lowest palpable rib and the top of your pelvis or iliac crest. So whatever that point is, it tends to be um, around the belly button. It's not usually the belly button, but it's around it. Um, that's waist circumference. And that one has stronger correlations to um, cardiovascular disease risk, uh, type two diabetes, and I'm not finding it in my notes here, but anyway, but there's, there's other, and cardiac um, issues there. It's actually a much better predictor than BMI. Yeah. So the reason that is, is because we're, we're looking at, you know, if you ever heard of, of visceral adiposity or basically abdominal adiposity. So, so fat in and around your abdomen and internal organs is deemed to be more harmful to your health than someone who has the, the pear-shaped um, distribution of adiposity, right? Where it's more lower body. So um, that's what waist circumference gives you a better picture at, picture of. Um, so that's why waist circumference, smoking history and physical activity are really what we're looking at. And, and if you put that together with someone who does have metabolic abnormalities, right, they're metabolically not perfectly healthy uh, and they have lack of physical activity, 
and excess abdominal adiposity or a high waist circumference measurement, then that will predict my health pretty um, in a pretty stable fashion from a statistical standpoint. But it's all those things. So, so you're listening to the Better and Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. My co-host, Rich Fami. We're looking at what's wrong with the BMI. But Richie also said at the top of the show that there are some uses for the BMI. I think I heard that right. Mm-hmm. And as we're as we're putting a bow on this, you know, if it were me, I'd want to throw it out entirely. But I know that there are consequences to that. So can you talk about like? What is this math guy garbage fire actually good for? Math guy garbage fire. I love that. I love math guy garbage fire. Mm. Um, So here's what it could be good for. Now, we're we're also going to talk about how public health professionals do recognize its limitations and issues too. Um, Or I just talked about it. I just talked about it by saying that. So so, um, what could it be good for? For capturing population level changes in average body weight. Population level, that's the key term there and okay. creating categories to visually represent those changes. And in that sense, it did help us categorize obesity as an evolving um, disease of increasing frequency, right? Those things are, that that is true in terms of BMI did help us figure that out, or not figure that out, but at least categorize it and frame it that way. So it's it's okay as a population study tool because it's also easy to do I just need someone's height and weight. I, I can't go out and put everyone through a DEXA scan or um, like a water displacement or air displacement or yeah, a CT scan or a skin, yeah, skin fold calipers, right? It's, it's easy to use from a, from a um, execution standpoint and I can get large data sets. So that's, that's really its only utility if we're going to to go there is large data sets. And where it could be helpful is um, public health can then go, look, there's a population where BMI is higher. Do we need to take another look here? Do we need to divert resources, programs, services, funding to say that, you know, is there, because if they have a higher BMI and we dig in and there is a higher incidence of um, you know, metabolic factors or metabolic abnormalities, and there's a higher instance of, um, you know, let's say we dig in and a waist circumference is higher. So, you know, then we can, there's low incidence of physical activity, right, for whatever socioeconomic factors, for example, maybe it's unsafe, so people don't feel good about going outside and exercising, or there's no green spaces, right, so there's no natural areas that people can take advantage of and move more, and you know, so in that sense, it's, it can be helpful because I can look at a population and go, well, well, this could be a sign of, of need in this population, but that, that is it, right? Yeah. It's, it's, not, so, it's not good for medical approvals, life insurance rates, fitness, a health predictor, uh, and, and public, health professionals rec- uh, public health professionals recognize that it's problematic. They know it's problematic, but its utility is strong. Yeah. So I think what I hear you saying is, use the tool in the way that the math guy who designed it intended, which was trend level data, instead of the way we try to bootstrap it. Um, And I think it's also worthwhile as we're we're coming to the end here to recognize that while there is a positive, positive, positive public health use, um, I know I've certainly seen times that it's being used to do like weight loss drug research or mm-hmm. weight loss 
diet research and we're looking at BMI change and typically it's in the short term. And for all the reasons we talk about in those other episodes, like those things are not short-term things and BMI is not a really good representation of it because it's not taking into the quality of tissue that's being changed in either of those specific use cases. And I just want to call that out because I think if you're not, if you're only hearing about what the positive use could be, if public health professionals are starting to use it in a positive way, you're not necessarily considering the negative ways that it's still influencing all of us and our perception of ourselves and one another. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Well, and the, you know, when you bring up research, the, the body of research too, if, if I look at a weight loss drug and I've got a trial of 150 people or something, um, and I'm using BMI, that's not going to be very helpful. Right? No. When, when I say population, I mean population, right? Yeah. 50,000, 100,000 people, the nation, um, you know, national population, millions. So if I'm looking at us, I'm using it as a main marker for um, success on a group of 150 or 200 people, it's, that's already problematic. So there's a lot of existing research that's problematic. And where we're really shifting to is people are going, we don't have anything better to get large numbers of people done. This is sort of what we have. It's a mathematical predictor and it's not, it, we know it's not great, but it's easy to do. So that's, that's where we're heading with it. Um, and I did find when we get to, we can wrap it up with a, with a what's the alternative and waist circumference is a good alternative like we talked about uh, earlier. Um, it's harder to come by in research, um, but it is based on what I was able to find, it is a better predictor for type two diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, congestive heart failure, stroke and gallbladder disease. So then BMI, it's a, it's, a much, it's a stronger predictor of those conditions than BMI is. Well, I was about sense. to say, this is essentially a call to action for all you math peeps out there, not just guys, but persons, math persons to like come up with something better, but you gave it away. <laughs> you already got one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Rich, thank you again for being part of this little experiment of series. Uh, can I put you on the spot for something? Something I didn't uh -oh. prep you for. <laughs> okay. Well, you were one of the people that worked on uh, Certified Wellness Coach. And of course, mm -hmm. we give away the promo code because we want better than fine listeners who are interested in this stuff to become wellness coaches. Um, and so you probably heard my promo a million times. Is there anything you want to say as someone who like CWC was your, was your baby uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> to tell people why it's awesome and that if they want to actually help people, like what, why do CWC? Or you can make a weird face and I'll say so. I do it. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a that's a big question. You always hit me with these loaded questions <laughs> on these <laughs> on these shows. These big ones. Um, if you know, if I had to sort of bottom line it, which is not gonna do it justice because it's an amazing course. I mean, just the experts alone that we worked with, I just I can't I still pinch myself as a nerd to mm -hmm. some of the people that we got to work on this with us, including yourself. Um I so the um it's it was it's filling a sore um a sorely needed gap in our work as professionals when we want to help other people because it really does take a look at that holistic approach um and and it it's not so much the you know like the nuts and bolts of exercise and and counting macros and all these different things it's really more like hey what's your relationship to all these things what's your relationship with movement What's your relationship with food? What's your relationship with other people? What's your relationship with stress? And, and when you really 
get down to it, you, you're helping people figure that stuff out on their own, because that's what coaching is, right? It's client-centric. They're figuring it out. They're, you're guiding them on a, on a path of, of self-discovery and their journey um, that is relative to their needs and capacities. And um, there's, nothing, there's nothing like it in terms of you know, the, the approach that you want to take with your client. I can't tell you too that I've gotten, uh, I can't say lots because that's an exaggeration, but I've gotten a, uh, more than a few messages from various social media platforms saying that this was the approach they always wanted to take with a client, uh, but they didn't know how to put it all together. And so they felt like CWC did a, did a good job of that. So we're very proud of it. So. Bang. So if you want to do that thing that Rich just talked about, um, certified wellness coach, well, listen up because I got a little gift for you. Um, listeners to this show get an additional 600, yes, six with two zeros, dollars off um, using the code MarshallCWC. So it's M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-C-W-C. Uh, you go to nasm.org, click wellness at the top. And you'll can learn all about the certification. And then when you check out, you want to use Marshall CWC to get $600 off. Um, Rich, any final thoughts before we wrap it up? No, just stop using BMI for individual assessment. That's it. Yeah, please. And <laughs> stop beating yourself up about mm -hmm. your individual BMI because it's not actually relevant to your health, wellness, or well-being. And Hopefully this like suite of the series of episodes has helped to evolve your thinking about kind of the culture we all were raised in and what we know now. And look, no demonizing on any of that, right? Because all of us are always trying to be a bit better, right? You wouldn't be listening to the show if you didn't want to be a bit better. Um, and so I genuinely believe that the practitioners, our parents, the researchers, like People were doing the best with what they understood then. And now we understood more so we can be more better. Uh, and that's what we're on about. So, of course, we would love to hear your feedback. Uh, and if you want to find me out on the interwebs, you can shoot me an email. It's info at darlene.coach. My Instagram is also darlene.coach. Love to have you shoot me a DM. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn or on my Substack. It's coachdar.substack.com. If you're a fan of the show, I hope you've already subscribed. Uh, if not, go on and do that. If you're watching on YouTube, give us a like. Uh, thank you to everyone who's written us a review. Reviews help to up us in um, the, the algorithm, push more people. And of course, if you get something out of this show, if it benefits you, if it makes you better, share. Because that's actually the way that most people find podcasts and it helps us grow and it helps get this kind of information out into the world. So thank you all for listening and be well.